Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm joined by Shaheen Valet. Yeah, pretty proud of myself. <laughs> and Chris Bickerton. So I woke up slightly feverish this morning, but because of my deep devotion to the podcast, I clambered out of bed. And we're talking about France, the forthcoming presidential election, and the meaning of Emmanuel Macron. Talking Politics has been brought to you for the last five years in partnership with the London Review of Books, who are mourning the end of the podcast the only way they know how, with one last unbeatable subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get six issues, that's three months of the LRB, where I'll be continuing to write about politics and more, for just £6 by using the URL lrb.me slash talk6. That's lrb.me slash talk6. I'm on the Ethernet, so I'm not even using Wi-Fi. Sorry, sorry, that's completely my fault. I'm good. I'm going to quit and then see if that makes it better. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, should we give it one more go? Thanks for your patience, Shaheen. Sorry about this. Before we start, I should say that we were hoping that Helen Thompson would join us for this conversation. And ironically, as we come to the end of this podcast, the tech has finally let us down. Helen isn't here this week, as I'll tell you at the end. She will be with us next week. Shaheen Vallet is a senior fellow at the German Council for Foreign Relations. We've talked to him before about France. He worked once upon a time with Emmanuel Macron. And we have, over the years, had many conversations with Chris Bickerton about the state of European politics and France and Italy in particular. Shaheen, we're a couple of months out from the first round of the presidential election and anything can happen in two months. There's a lot going on in the world. But as things stand now, do you see any plausible scenario in which Emmanuel Macron does not end up getting re-elected as president of France? Well, I, I see only one scenario in, in, in which that could uh, occur, and, um, and that's a scenario where Valérie Pécresse, the leader of the, of the right, of the Républicains, manages to secure a seat in the second round and then beat Macron in the second. But, you know, that is a very low probability event at this point because there are two candidates that are more probable to be in the second round than she is, and one is uh, Éric Zemmour, a far-right a Trumpian candidate, and the other the infamous uh, Marine Le Pen. So uh, it would be quite a feat for uh, Pécresse to be able to jump uh, two seats in the queue and, and, and find her place in the second round. And just to be clear, before I bring in Chris to get his view on that scenario, so, so it's relatively low probability that she comes second. But what what's your take, if that were to happen, of her chances of beating Macron? Because that also looks quite a stretch, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, at the current, you know, polls, Macron is still beating her, you know, 55 to 45 or 57 to 43. So Macron still has a considerable lead over her uh, in the second round. That being said, I think the bet that people in her camp are making is that the mobilization for Macron will be low uh, and uh, that abstention could actually help her uh, uh, take the lead. And there is also a hope that she could benefit a lot from the far right vote uh, in the in the second round. Um, so, so that's that's the that's the game, or that's the that's the plan for her to to manage to to beat Macron in the second round. But that that is a stretch at this point. So, Chris, do you what's your take on that scenario? I think I would probably agree with Shaheen that it's um, one of the few scenarios that conceivably 
um, could result in Macron being defeated. Um, I was looking over uh, Valérie Pécresse's uh, sort of past uh, history, her career. Um, one feature about her is that definitely she's been underestimated um, and has you know, fairly frequently surprised people around her. Other sort of people have been preferred to her in lots of cases. She was always in the background a bit, uh, but nevertheless has been able to be quite successful so far. She thinks of herself as sort of a surprise candidate. Um, I think means that uh, at the moment, she's polling fairly close to Marine Le Pen and to Eric Zemmour, and so she could uh, get into the second round. Um, so I think it'd be wrong to underestimate her. Um, but uh, running against Macron, I mean, the, in a sense, uh, Macron's kind of team always suggested that they were most afraid of Valérie Pécresse uh, because conceivably she could beat him in the way that somebody like Eric Zemmour would be so polarizing, so divisive that he couldn't. And Macron has the experience of having beaten Marine Le Pen before. Um, so she was the one that they were afraid of. Um, I think they're a bit more relaxed now because her campaign has been pretty bad and she's really struggled to take off. So even if she gets through into the second round, there's this feeling that um, that Macron could could beat her. But the things that Shane said about these contingencies, you know, the turnout exactly, uh, whether people in the end are maybe not so motivated to vote for Macron as they were in 2017, maybe these things would play to her to her advantage. Shaheen, uh, Valérie Pécresse gave a big speech at the weekend that's had a lot of coverage, um, not just in France, but outside of France, partly because from what I read about it, it was, um, for the reasons Chris suggested, it wasn't a great speech. Her presentation, she was stiff, she was awkward. It didn't certainly get the the sort of uplift for her campaign that she was hoping. But a lot of the coverage outside of France has focused on the fact that she used this phrase, the great replacement, which um, is one that Marine Le Pen has avoided, though Zamor definitely not. Um, and you know, it looks obvious that what she's doing is positioning herself not just in the hope that she might get through to the second round, but if she does, she, you know, her only possibility of winning is to mobilise the supporters of the other two candidates of the right further to the right than her. But it looks like a pretty precarious, risky strategy. I mean, maybe it isn't, but that, certainly it appears it, it has a whiff of desperation about it. Is that fair? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think it, 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 I, I'm actually surprised that it's been so surprising, uh, both in France and, and outside. In reality, it's, uh, it's really consistent with uh, the speeches she has made in the past and very consistent with something very important she did just after winning the primary, which is to reach out to the right wing of her own party, and in particular, the, the, our contender in the primary, who, who was Eric Ciotti, the mayor of, of Nice. And she went down to Nice, embraced him, and basically managed to pull the party together, basically along a line uh, that is very much to the right end of the historical political balance inside Les Républicains. So she's been uh, tiptoeing with the far right for quite a while. And I think she's made a very deliberate choice since actually the night where she won the primary that she needed to be to, to the very right end of her own party in order to keep her own party together because Eric Ciotti at the time was threatening her of backing Zemmour instead of her. And so I think the line, the political line of the Republican will be a line at the very far end of, uh, of their political spectrum, which opens up uh, space for Macron uh, to steal uh, both some of the voters of the traditional Republican voters, but also some of the political members. Uh, you've seen a couple of former ministers of Sarkozy uh, actually announcing that they would back uh, Macron, for instance. So 
I think the the Republicans has made that uh, they have made that choice quite a while ago, and and that speech, you know, was just a validation of a choice that had been made quite a while ago already. So I suppose that raises the question, which is the one in many ways I'm most interested in, and to get your both of your take on this, which is the cliche of the moment in descriptions of French politics is that France as a nation has moved to the right. And this election is being fought out on different gradations of right-wing politics. The left has been squeezed. We've got three possible candidates vying for second place in the presidential election under the system where, you know, the, the competition in the first round is between many candidates. But you've got three polling at around 15% who are really quite a long way to the right. I mean, we'll talk in a second about what right means here, because we there's this whole separate question about economic issues and so on. But certainly the focus on ideas about national identity and immigration and so on. What's happened in France? It, it does seem different from, I mean, features of this are, are visible in all sorts of democratic settings, including in the United States and indeed in Britain. But why France in particular has, has there been this movement so that in a sense, politics has shifted a long way along the spectrum, and the fights are all taking place on one side of the divide. I, to be honest, I don't fully understand it. If either of you can explain it to me, I would be really grateful. Chris, do you want to have a go first? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm partly convinced by that in the sense that if you take the cumulative total of what are definitely candidates on the the right of the political spectrum, then it seems remarkably high. Um, I'm a little bit less convinced with this idea that France um, is characterised by this strong rightward drift and that this has come out now in the 2022 elections. Um, I'd say more it's something that's been going on for a long, long time. Um, and what we've not seen is really the the fragmentation that we see today. Um, that, I think, is, to be honest, for me, the most striking feature of the uh, of the of the campaign so far is how enormously fragmented it is. Um, the left has always been fragmented and there's always been this attempt to try and unify the left this big historical project in France um, occasionally it succeeded uh, and most often it hasn't on the right there was this long-standing division between the far right and the center right but now we have this new element which is the divisions within the far right itself between Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour and if you listen to Marine Le Pen she argues that Zemmour's project is essentially to destroy the Rassemblement National and it's all about the next election, not 2022, but the one uh, five years afterwards. So there's enormous amounts of fragmentation. And I think that's what uh, is really striking. The ideas themselves, I mean, some of these um, uh, have some element of novelty. The theory that you mention in its most precise formulation is fairly recent. But I think one of the features of French politics has been this crisis of social integration, the politicization of uh, of immigration and race. Um, and that takes us certainly back to, to the emergence and the prominence of uh, of the Front National and Jean-Marie Le Pen, which had France as a slight outlier. And I think that's that's continued, I would say. Um, and now these ideas have become most prominent because you have these candidates who can actually gather a good 15% of the vote. And so that puts these ideas front and, front and centre. If I may, I, I would add something. So I, I agree with Chris's description of a, of a slow drift and a growing fragmentation of the political uh, left uh, paving the way for this lurch to the right. I think there is also another dimension, which is a real identity crisis in France. And I think the feeling that identity politics is an assault on 
both uh, French, a certain French uh, vision of universalism, as well as a certain French vision of the relationship between society and religion or the state and religion. And I think this has really crystallized, in particular after 2015 and, and the terrible uh, terrorist attack that France suffered, this, I think, has crystallized a sense of uneasiness about, uh, about Islam and I think has radically polarized the political spectrum around these issues. And that across the political spectrum, you know, the right wing has been very divided around these issues, but also the left wing is internally divided around how to, you know, think or rethink uh, our concept of laicite and whether this is something that should be a matter of discussion or whether it shouldn't. I think that has contributed quite a lot to this lurch to the right and fed, you know, the notion of a grand remplacement as well as other notions such, that, such as islamo-gauchisme and, and other that are really, I think, central to the political debate in France in the way that they are not uh, in the rest of Europe. So this may be a, an unfair characterization, but as you describe that, the two features that stand out, there's a kind of grandiosity to this self-conception of France at the forefront of a tradition of universalism that's now under threat and somehow a sense that France symbolizes the front line of a of a wider battle it's it's an inflated it feels like an inflated sense of the centrality of french politics to a some kind of global struggle and at the same time it's it's deeply anxious it's almost neurotic there's a sort of mixture of grandiosity and neurosis to this which again you see in other places too in american politics has a mix of grandiosity and neurosis but it feels quite extreme. I mean, there's something distinctive and unusual about that combination that's producing this kind of politics, or is that unfair? No, no, I, th- I, I think there's something very unusual, which is deeply rooted in a, in a, in a sense of French exceptionalism. Uh, and I think the French really believing, because we're taught that at school, that we truly are, uh, you know, the nation that gave uh, birth to... Uh, uh, universalism and, and human rights. So yeah. I, I completely agree with your description of a combination of, of, of uh, neurosis and, and grandiosity and the two feeding off each other. I, I would also add, though, I think that um, these themes are fairly long-standing in French politics uh, and certainly the debate around laïcité and its relationship to uh, a very large um, uh, Muslim population in France takes us back to some of the big debates that broke out in the 1980s. I think Shaheen was definitely right in saying that well, this anxiety that you mentioned, David, has become normalized and very central in politics. I think it does have something to do with uh, with the terrorist attacks that um, that hit France in uh, in fifteen sixteen that became uh, really a central feature of uh, of French politics and the response to it, and it normalized, I think, a certain right wing framing maybe of a lot of of a lot of issues. Um, so I think I think there are some contingent factors I think there that do make a big uh, that do make a big difference. It's worth noting to be honest that even though Picres has embraced some of these far right themes, if you really want to think of her as a political candidate, she is a classical old fashioned Gaullist um, of the sort of Chirac school, uh, and people have often complained that she's so out of touch and old fashioned in the kind of ideas that she's putting forward. And I think that is what comes through in her political persona. So I don't think her bid to win the far right vote and the Zemmour vote, I'm not sure that that will be very successful. Uh, it certainly doesn't um, come across very well uh, in her in her program or in what she's offering. So I've been using, we've been using the language of left and right to characterize 
divisions on questions like immigration and France's place in the world and a whole range of other things. But there are also all of the questions about domestic economic policy, questions about France's place within the EU and the Eurozone. Shane, if you look at these candidates, and we haven't even discussed what Macron stands for, which we're going to come on to and what a second Macron term might mean. But can you map left-right language that we've been using and France's lurch to the right or or gradual shift to the right, depending on when you want to draw the timeframes, does that map on to an equivalent rightward shift in economic policy? I I doubt it. I mean, instinctively, I feel that seems implausible. Are there actually bigger divisions on economic questions that are beneath the surface and may yet come out in the next two months? No, I, I think what's striking is uh, almost the absence of debate uh, on economic policy issues during this campaign and, and the great convergence in reality of a large part of the political spectrum around, you know, basically views that are very close to that of Macron. Pécresse will argue that she will have a much more aggressive policy when it comes to tax cuts and when it comes to cutting public expenditure. But in reality, we're all, you know, talking about marginal moves around the same uh, trend. What's striking is that on the left, there has been very little uh, of an argument made against uh, Macron's economic policy, apart from maybe Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, the rest of the left-wing spectrum has been uh, has been entirely absent from this conversation. Uh, strikingly, um, uh, Christian Taubira, one of the potential uh, candidates on the left, very recently almost you know rejected the idea of a, of a wealth tax which is or, or at least an inheritance tax which used to be a, a, a very central part of a, of a left-wing redistributive agenda so i think there's been a move to the right and and i think a, a less polarization on on economic policy issues and greater polarization on social and identity politics and on Europe, there has also been uh, a remarkable convergence um, with Marine Le Pen after the 2017 uh, debacle, pretty much abandoning the notion of a, of a Euro exit uh, or an EU exit. Uh, and Mélenchon as well, who had campaigned on the idea of a plan A and plan B, plan B being you know, France being ready to withdraw from the European Union. Um, uh, that also is slowly disappearing. Uh, Mélenchon acknowledged very recently that he thought Europe was ready for a great leap uh, and a great change towards the views that he's held for for a long time. So uh, I find it striking that on economic policy as well as on European issues, there has been at least, if not a great convergence, at least the end of a very acute polarization. I would add to what Shaheen was saying that it's it's an interesting paradox, which is you have this campaign which seems so divisive because there are so many different figures competing against one another. Um, but then you have this curious convergence on some of the most important policy questions. Um, my, my rule of thumb had been in the past to say something like Marine Le Pen was basically campaigning on a national populist ticket, which argued for a very strong interventionist state. Um, uh, and somebody like uh, Pécresse would be a sort of small-c conservative uh, who models herself actually a bit on uh, on Thatcher. The, the phrase that she uses for her campaign is la dame du fer, which she means a doer, somebody who gets stuff done. But obviously it's a play on words with la dame du fer, which refers to the Iron Lady, so Margaret Thatcher. But I think Shaheen's right that in practice, these policy differences have seemed fairly inconsequential in the actual campaign. Um, 
And some of the things that have stood out most, actually, I think are really um, uh, chance events, uh, particularly politicians that show that they're unable to um, to manage the policy details. Christine Taubira had this terrible moment where she lost the train of thought completely in something that she was saying. And there was a painful sort of 30 seconds or so where she tried to find uh, find herself again. And that really was quite catastrophic, I think. Um, so this, I think, is the um, the terrain where the presidential campaign will be fought, partly ideological around some of these far-right theories, but a lot of it about these contingent sort of factors and showing that you can do a good job. And Marine Le Pen has spent the last five years trying to make herself a more credible person in a policy sense, more competent. And I think that will be a big part of the campaign. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Shaheen, how much of this economic convergence is a function of the last two years and of pandemic politics? It, it, it often felt, to so go back to 2017 for the reasons you said, that French politics could turn on a, a fundamental division about France's place in the Eurozone and, as it were, the economic constraints that come with that. But in the last two years, they, in some respects, they have been stabilising of the, of the Euro project, but they've also been constraining for everyone in all sorts of ways. And and again, this isn't just a French phenomenon. But do you think that that actually is a, a significant factor here, that the, the reason the battle is being fought on the train where it is, is that's where there is the space for these differences. It's shrunk during and after the pandemic on fundamental questions about the euro, about French economic policy? Uh, yes. So I think, you know, part of the convergence is the result of the, of the pandemic and the economic policy response to the pandemic. Um, uh, but I think some of the convergence predates the, the pandemic. Uh, to some extent, Macron embodied a form of uh, synthesis between, you know, the left and the right on economic policy issues. Uh, and that's why uh, in 2017, at least, he was sort of equally embraced by right-wing voters who were happy with the cut in the wealth tax and embraced by left-wing voters uh, who uh, believed to some extent in his agenda for equality, but not via uh, fiscal policy redistribution. So I think he had sort of managed to find a, a balance that became uh, the norm. And I think you're right that there was an additional source of convergence during the, the COVID crisis with sort of the end of a, of a profound or at least a temporary suspension of a profound antagonism between northern and southern Europe, to say it crudely, uh, or, you know, a, a suspension of the inherent tensions built in the euro area architecture. Now, whether this is a temporary moment that is just resulting from the COVID policy response, or whether we have indeed been through um, a, a Hamiltonian leap, I think is a question that is very fundamental to the future of Europe. 
I tend to uh, be of the view that we've done something that is more temporary than permanent in nature. And I think the, the contest to end this antagonism rooted inside the Euro era architecture is still alive and kicking. But I think, I think for the moment, at least, we have this suspension. Yeah, I, I would, uh, uh, I think, agree with that. But I think I would say there's also something political about it, which is that um, I suppose the what we've entered into, certainly in French politics and more broadly as well, is something of a post-populist moment. Um, and so some of the questions that Marine Le Pen was asking about Eurozone membership, some of the 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 arguments that somebody like Jean-Luc Mélenchon was making about France's place in uh, in the EU, um, France's relationship to the EU. Partly this is maybe to do with COVID, which has sort of solidified France's place within the Eurozone for some of these reasons that Shaheen said about this change in Eurozone fiscal policy. Um, but it puts to the test, I think, some of these claims uh, that the more extreme parts of France's political spectrum were making about the EU. And they've shown themselves to be, I think, fairly unsubstantiated in terms of any ideas that they have about an alternative. Jean-Luc Mélenchon used these various phrases to describe a more sort of popular type of federation, but it didn't really come to anything. And Marine Le Pen had no alternative really to, to Eurozone membership for France. And in terms of what people want or interested in, there wasn't really I think, that much appetite for uh, a more radical rethinking of France's place in Europe. So compared with 2017, I think we're at a place where for policy reasons, for COVID reasons, and also for these more specifically political reasons, we've come to something more moderate uh, and less uh, and less radical, certainly vis-a-vis the EU. And Shane, you said it might be temporary, we don't know. And if it is temporary, presumably it could start to come under strain pretty soon. Um, we have rising inflation. Uh, we have the possibility of you know, the ECB uh, having to deal with that, a uh, possibility of a raise of interest rates, of, of a tightening. Uh, I'm sorry that Helen's not here uh, today to discuss this, but you know there are flickerings of familiar unease around Italian politics, uh, Italian bonds, and the spread starting to widen, a sense that if in the next few months it becomes harder for the Italian state to borrow, some of these old wounds could reopen. They could reopen quite quickly. I mean, if the if the COVID phase was a, a temporary suspension of familiar hostilities, I mean, we're sort of coming out of it now, aren't we? I mean, could it not even cause difficulties before April? I don't think it will be acute enough to cause difficulties uh, before April. But indeed, uh, you know, we've had um, uh, an ECB press conference uh, this month that has uh, opened up uh, the possibility of an interest rate hike this year, which, you know, by and large was seen as implausible until until recently. And more importantly, we have now everything in place for an acceleration of the end of the asset purchases program by uh, the ECB, which I think may be more than uh, the European recovery plan and the mutualization of debt that took place during the COVID crisis was the central policy response that ended or suspended the antagonism inside the euro area. So indeed, we're we're nearing a moment of uh, of truth, and I think there is probably an underappreciation in Europe uh, for the very deep political consequences of the ECB's actions uh, during this crisis. 
In fact, we have created a, a suspended moment. We are nearing a moment of, of truth uh, because we have probably underappreciated the extent to which the ECB's actions during the COVID uh, crisis have been central to stabilizing not only the economy, but also the politics around uh, the euro area. And so if we have indeed no more asset purchases, no more stabilization of government debt markets by the ECB this year, I think we're reopening the question of the long-term stability of the euro area and the necessary changes, architectural changes, that are needed to fix the single currency. So, so I want to come back to a question about the, the meaning of the Macron years and how it might look if, it, if it's a decade. But Chris, just before we come on to that, just to take a slight detour towards Italy that I mentioned there, is it your sense that Italian politics is still, to use that awful cliche, the canary in the coal mine here and the, the first signs of real distress if there is a, a change in ECB policy sooner rather than later? will manifest themselves there? Are they already, I mean, I've read a bit about it, are they already starting to come back to the surface? Well, so I may be uh, mistaken about this, but my feeling is that we've maybe moved a little bit too fast here in sort of um, in what we were saying. I, I agree with Shaheen that the winding down of the ECB interventions would have um, structural Eurozone-wide implications. And in that sense, Italy as a country that tends often to be affected quite deeply by these things, but also as a very big player matters. But the reason why I said we've moved a little bit fast is that, to be honest, most of the COVID fund um, hasn't been spent yet. Um, you know, governments have submitted their plans for spending, which have been very carefully vetted by the European Commission to make sure that they're not um, going to be spent on sort of things that aren't worthwhile or that um, are likely to be siphoned off into somebody's pocket. Um, but we're at the beginning, I think, of this fiscal sort of bet by the EU that if it puts a lot of money into this next generation EU fund, then the countries of, let's say, the South will benefit disproportionately from that. So a country like Spain and Italy really haven't started spending the money yet. Um, I probably, I would say it's not really enough money. It's not that significant to make such a big difference to these economies. But politically, it makes a big difference, which is to say that it from the Italian perspective, they feel as if they're in a better place, um, have been listened to much more, and now have to get on with trying to make you know good the the plans which they've submitted. So, I think it's a bit too early to tell, um, and I find it a bit unlikely that things would unwind so quickly when you've had this fairly significant political shift, and governments in Rome and in Madrid feel as if they have a lot of money now to spend and they want to to get on with it. So, I think the political tone is different now than it was uh, a, a few years ago. Shaheen, do you just want to come back on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree on the political tone and the consequences of the recovery plan uh, and the EU funding of the recovery plan uh, in, in Italy. Where I think I have a, a slight disagreement is that I think, economically speaking, the, the, the true contribution to stability has been ECB action more so than the recovery fund. The recovery fund was extraordinarily politically important because it enabled ECB action and bolder ECB action for a longer period of time. Uh, but I don't believe that, you know, 750 billion euros of recovery fund on their own without ECB action would have nearly had the effect that they've had. And so I'm maybe a touch more worried than, than Chris in the sense that, yes, the recovery fund plays a, a, a critical role in stabilizing politics, but cannot trump 
uh, monetary policy withdrawal if it were to take place. So, so then to go back to where we started, because we haven't actually talked much about Macron, but assuming that he does win, and so we're looking at a decade of of Macron's France, 2017 to 2027, and the next five years, he will be the leading player in Europe, the leading politician, certainly the, the one with the, the, the longest standing experience dealing with possibly this this fallout of the unwinding of the ECB program, of course, dealing with whatever may be coming with Russia, with Ukraine, dealing with the continuing soar in European politics, which is relationships with China, with the United States. Maybe Macron's presidency will overlap with another Trump presidency. Maybe it will overlap with a, a different Republican in the White House. So I'm going to ask you a completely impossible question if we're only halfway through, but I want you to to say what you think is the character of this possible Macron decade. It's you know we we've talked about the fact there's an economic convergence around or political convergence around a sort of Macronism in in economic terms. There's there's a, a shift and a, and a real set of divisions in France now because of the rise of a, anxieties around identity politics. But if you think, Shane, if you think of a Macron decade and you had to sum up its possible character, how would you do that? What, what, is, what is the meaning of Macron? I think the legacy of Macron, you know, 10 years after uh, 2017, will not be very much what he has done for France in terms of economic policy. It probably will be more what he has done uh, for Europe both in um, addressing the architectural flaws of the euro that we've discussed, some of that not being of his own making, by the way, but also being, you know, the, the sort of the natural response to, to events uh, in, a, in, a, in a typical uh, Luc van Midlar uh, understanding of, of, of Europe. Uh, and I think also, so that's for the economic part. And, and, and second, I think uh, imposing Europe or making Europe a more, a consistent and able uh, geopolitical actor. I think that will be his legacy, which is not a small legacy. It is smaller than the ambition he had because he had another ambition which was very present in his 27 bid, which is basically to transform not only France, but also Europe's politics. He really believed that uh, his brand of politics would be able to put an end to the old divisions and the old traditional parties. And I think there was really a moment at this point where we thought a political recomposition, the end of the old Christian Democrats and the end of the old uh, social democratic parties in Europe could die and could really be rejuvenated by, by something like the Macron political proposal. And I think that you know five years into it seems to have failed it has failed in france and it has failed in the rest of europe we see a lot more resilience of the old traditional parties than i think you know we thought possible in 2017 and so i think that aspect of the macron political project is dying or 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 has died so the legacy will not be on economic policy will not be on politics it might be on on europe's uh, stability and standing in the world but but just to push you on that we are only halfway through, that would be to project the last five years through the next five years. Is it not equally possible that the next five years, if Macron is there, will see intense strain on what he's tried to achieve in in the first five? And if we're talking about a more coherent, a more stable Europe with some of the 
internal contradictions, if not ironed out, at least better managed, that could come under huge pressure for, for all the reasons that I mentioned, not just economic, but also geopolitical, China, Russia, and the rest, that the real strains could yet be to come. No, I think so. I think you're right that in, indeed, uh, you know, we're, we're bound to see more strains, more tension and pressure. But I am of the view, and I may be wrong in that, and I might be, uh, <clears throat> I might be projecting my own beliefs on, on, on Macron's uh, political path. Uh, but I think, you know, Europe will find a way to respond to these strains because the alternatives, which is uh, falling apart and disintegrating, uh, is a lot costlier than uh, than trying to find a, a solution, and so I'm, I'm I'm optimistic in that in that in that sense, and therefore I maybe have the tendency to project you know the next five years when it comes to European politics to be similar to the last five last five in the sense that Europe will be able you know to respond to the strains in a in a more or less constructive way. Yeah, can I um sort of um. I suppose maybe disagree with Shaheen to an extent, which is that I think the legacy of Macron, I think, would be felt very strongly within France at the domestic level. Um, just to go on a slight detour via, via the, the French novelist Michel Houellebecq. Um, Houellebecq used to be the enfant terrible of sort of French literature, um, but his most recent book is one where um, he he had spent a year shadowing the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire. Um, and it has this scenario of France economically outstripping its uh, its competitors. Um, and what interested me about that, I suppose, is I think for me, the legacy of Macron really is that he has managed so far um, in his first term, and I think would continue doing this in his second term, to slowly pick apart what had become a an almost immovable French economic model, um, heavily status, particularly with an extremely regulated labor market. Um, and I think he's managed so far, and we continue to do that, to slowly introduce a much higher level of, uh, of flexibility. Macron, in this sense, is maybe comparable to somebody like Gerhard Schroeder, whose legacy was really the reform of the German labor market. Um, and so his legacy would then be a France that was perhaps more economically um, uh, uh, competitive under some metrics. But the social fabric, I think, of France will have probably been transformed quite considerably. And I would say probably not for the not for the good. Um, so I think that's that for me would be his his legacy. I think the stuff at the European level is very difficult to to say a huge amount uh, about because there are a lot of contingencies um, and some of what he may have done could very well unravel. But I think the most sort of uh, the greatest confidence I'd have is to say he has so far, and I think we continue to do so, profoundly marked um, the. Uh, the, the nature and the sort of feel of the French economy and, as a result, French society. And do you agree with Shaheen that the view in 2017, and after all, we've discussed this with you, Chris, many times on this podcast, so it's good to have a sort of summing up at this point, um, that the, the, the familiar European party model was unravelling um, this, this new kind of movement politics, which Macron exemplified, but also Five Star and other political movements in Europe, um, that 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 time is, if not past, has at least peaked and that the old parties are maybe not of the left in France, but that the old parties are proving more resilient than might have seemed likely three or four years ago? Well, I can see what uh, Shaheen was saying there. I think that certainly applies to some places. It applies to Spain, I think, with the closure of the, the Podemos era, if you want to frame it that way. 
it applies, I think, also to Italy and this experiment with sort of digital democracy through the Five Star Movement. I think it applies actually less well to to France. I think um, the 2022 election campaign has seemed to be a good reflection, actually, of the effect of Macron 2017, which was to tear apart the French party system and then see how it sort of settles again afterwards. Um, And Macron's been able to remain in place, even though he's never really built anything like a party. But you have somebody like Zemmour who emerges, um, again, somebody without a party, somebody outside of um, of sort of party politics has been very successful so far. I think to an extent, I definitely agree that the mo- there's, a, some, there's a, the, a moment, whatever that moment might have been, has passed. There's a sense of that. Um, but I think in France, what you get is a feeling that actually things that are fairly unexpected continue to, to happen. It's not as if Pécresse has managed to consolidate the right in France in some sort of um, safe way and bring it back to the old runoff between the socialists and the, the Gaullists. That age is definitively gone in uh, in France. Um, and I think politicians are still having the same problem which they had at the beginning of this sort of era of more populist politics, which is that they talk a language that people don't understand or are not interested in. Um, Manuel Valls, a former French prime minister, called it la langue morte, the dead language of politics. And I think that's still still the case uh, today. So the problems haven't gone away, but I think there is a sense in which this kind of populist moment has maybe passed. But Macron's legacy politically so far has definitely been this really deep uh, fragmentation that he's introduced into French politics. So Shaheen, one final question for you to take us right back to where we started. Uh, we haven't said much about Eric Zemmour. Um, Chris mentioned there that he does sort of exemplify that at least within France, there is still the possibility of politicians without a traditional party base to create a, a new kind of movement that's at least potentially very destabilizing of the established political order. But I take you at your word that he can't win. So he's not one of the candidates were he to stumble into the second round who could unite the forces of the center right and the far right behind him. It, it's impossible to imagine him defeating Macron in a runoff. But he's he's made a profound difference to French politics for sure. And I talked to Chris in 2017, in which we were talking about 2017 being a kind of dry run for 2022. And now I'm asking you about 2022 as a dry run for 2027. But what is his long term plan? Has he has he achieved already what he wanted, which is to get politics moved closer to his terrain? Or is there something more going on with him? Well, well, first, I think we should not underestimate the ability of a of a single man or woman to conquer uh, French politics and transform it profoundly. And I think this is what Macron has done in 2017. You know, Macron was pretty much like Zemmour today in the sense that he had no party, uh, no structure behind him when he started his bid to the presidency and, and he won. Uh, so I think that's an important lesson about how a charismatic providential leader can, can take over uh, the country rather uh, quickly. And that should be a, a source of, of, of caution. I, I think Zemmour has managed to do what, what he wanted, which is to basically you know, tilt the discussion towards uh, identity politics and to uh, force not only the right, uh, but also uh, the left to talk about uh, issues that were, at least before him, uh, relatively secondary in the, in the political discourse. Um, the thing that he has done that is quite formidable, though, and that is probably underestimated, is that he has been able to triangulate by not only being able to gather former Le Pen voters 
who uh, thought Le Pen had moved too much to the center and was becoming uh, just a consensual politician. So he's, you know, Zemmour manages to capture the protest vote that Le Pen has, had lost, but he also uh, manages to capture some of the establishment right-wing vote that uh, has lost faith in the Républicain. And I think doing both at the same time is extremely difficult because you have to speak to two very audiences with fairly different messages. And I think Zemmour has been able to do that. So he's potentially a very dangerous uh, force in recomposing uh, the right wing of the political spectrum. And even though I don't think he stands much of a chance in uh, 2022, if he were to continue, which is not guaranteed, and if he were to build something that is bigger than just a one-man show, which is what his movement currently is, I think he could be a very serious threat uh, in the future. We will tweet links to Chris and Shaheen's further thoughts on this and also Helen as well. And next week, it'll just be me and Helen. I'm going to be talking to her about her new book about to be published. It's called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And it will be a conversation about many of the things that she and I have discussed on Talking Politics over the years please join us for that. You can also hear me and Helen this week on 5.38, Nate Silver's podcast, talking about Boris Johnson once again. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm joined by Shaheen Valet. I need to think of a pithy word or something like that. Okay. Um, hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm joined by Shaheen Vallée and Chris Bickerton to talk about France, Emmanuel Macron, and what it might mean. Oh, God, I haven't even thought this through. One more go. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.